and welcome to the ninth episode of the Football Media Podcast on the team of John O'Shea's platform. I'm John McKenzie and, across the course of the new season, I'm going to be bringing you a weekly podcast that seeks to open up the often murky underworld of the football media. Each episode will bring you an interview with an expert in as many diverse areas within the industry as possible. We've got writers, authors, artists, journalists, broadcasters, event coordinators, lawyers, commentators. If you can name it, we've got it. This week I'm speaking to Andrew Flint, the head of content at Ronnie Dog Media. In the course of our conversation, we discuss the Russian football media, Andrew's experiences of the World Cup in Russia, and the work of Ronnie Dog Media, a new media company operating with an interesting model. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, subscribe, rate and review on iTunes in order to help us gain exposure, and if you're a social media person, follow us on Twitter, at FootyMediaPod. Next week we'll be talking to Chris Sutcliffe, co-host of the Media Voices podcast, about football media from an outside perspective. But before that, it's Andrew Flynn, the football media in Russia, and the ins and outs of Ronnie Dog Media. Enjoy. I'm joined today by Andrew Flint, Head of Content at Ronnie Dog Media. Andrew, how are you doing? Um, not bad, thanks, John. Not bad. Uh, nice, peaceful winters. Sunday morning over here. Mm. Over here being in Russia and this morning being the morning the clocks go back. So it's really quite impressive that we've managed to overcome all of the, the temporal hurdles in our way. Absolutely. It's the most frustrating period of the year for me because the the time difference is now five hours. So when it comes between England and where I am in Western Siberia, uh, four hours is manageable because the even the late Champions League games, for example, we started at midnight, but now starting at 1am, it's that one hour too late to watch for late football. So I'm not a fan of this period. Mm. So what time does that end for you then? So say it's a later game. I guess with that, with extra time, that, that takes you well into the early hours of the morning, is it? Yeah, it does. I mean, it can take me up to... Well, to put it in real life context, it can take me up to two and a half hours before I need to wake up again <laughs> and get my kids up for, for school and kindergarten. So that's how I measure time. Um, minutes and hours on the clock have, have little meaning to me at the moment. <laughs> really. I like to start off by letting the guests situate themselves in the football media. So should we begin with some sort of overview of how you ended up where you are? You've already mentioned Western Siberia, which is a little bit off the beaten track. But also, how did you end up working in football? Well, about 10 years ago, I started a newspaper journalism course in Wimbledon, and it was a, a five-month course, and my plan was to go into uh, newspaper journalism in the sports area. And, of course, it's a really popular area of, of people studying journalism in general, so I knew it would be competitive, but I didn't realise quite how competitive. Um, living in London, um, as it's hardly a secret, is not exactly cheap, um, so I finished the course in January 2009, and that was, of course, a, a period around, I believe it was the Icelandic volcano eruption, something to do with the banks. It was a difficult time, is how I remember it. Uh, I couldn't find a job, and after three or four months living in London, I, I basically I gave it up. I moved home, and I thought, well, I've got to find a job somewhere. In fact, you know what really pushed me into it? Uh, coming over here to Russia was being rejected for a job by little supermarket. Um, <laughs> that was the lowest rung I was prepared to go to. When they said no, I thought, well, you know, sod this, I'm, I'm doing something else. So I, I used my summer teaching experience to find a job in any country. It wasn't a plan to come to Russia. It was just simply Russia replied to me first. Um, I came out here. I taught for four or five years and I'd, I'd given up the whole writing media journalism career projects I really had not considered it at all uh, until about four and a half years ago and the local football team here at that time were playing in the third tier of Russian football and, and believe me that is a very low standard of football um, and I went to buy a season ticket for the 2014-2015 season and the, the ticket office lady recognised me. I mean, it's not hard to recognise the only Englishman to come to a Siberian third tier game. Um, and she couldn't quite understand that I wanted a season ticket. So she directed me up to the marketing manager's office. And when he realised there was an Englishman interested in the club, his eyes lit up. And, it, John, it was one of those light bulb moments, one of those 
things which you've never considered until the moment itself. His eyes lit up and he said, we need to get you to write for us. And I at first thought he meant just a few, a little throwaway comments or (laughs) a little mini interview in the program. And I looked out of the window and this is looking out onto the pitch, the first team were training. And I knew the players inside out. I I really, really loved the team. And Vladimir Kuleshov is basically the Phil Neville of Russian lower league football. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Phil Neville was the Phil Neville of Russian lower league football, isn't it? I I don't think many people have had that comparison drawn, really, (laughs) um, to be honest. And yeah, and I said to him, I don't think Kuleshov should play at the weekend because he just drifts forward far too much and he's caught out of position and his jaw drops. He said, nobody, even Russian people, would pay that much attention. And he said, I want you to write properly for us. And that was when I thought, this is what I wanted to do five years ago. How have I forgotten this? Um, And then I just wrote a few casual articles about the stadium, about the team. And I then started finally trying to discover blogs and websites about Russian football because it was so inaccessible so hard to find any content of any kind in English language. Um, and eventually I found one or two websites. I mean, still write for both of them, in fact, um, Russian Football News and, and Football Grad. And that's got me a couple of press passes to Russian Premier League games. And then I started writing longer feature-length articles for these football times. And that carried on for a few years until, of course, the World Cup. Um, now, the World Cup, that was a golden opportunity to get, hopefully, accreditation. I had no idea quite how convoluted the process would be, and I didn't in the end, simply because the process was too too confusing. Um, and I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm here in Russia. The World Cup is here. I cannot do nothing. And I, I've been working with uh, Chris Darwin, who is now my boss at Ronnie Dog Media, and I said, Chris, look, I can only really go to Yekaterinburg, which is 300 kilometers down the road. Um, and he said, why not go to all 11 cities? I said, well, basically, I can't afford it. He said, well, look, I'll put a bit of money together. We'll send you out there, do some coverage, interview the local people, show us what it's like in and around the stadiums and everything. So I did. And that's now become a full time job. So that is how I am now currently working in Russian football media. Yeah, well, there's lots to unpack there, and, and we will go through all of it in in, in various details. Um, but let's start talking, I think primarily let's start talking about the Russian football media, because I think the words Russian and media conjure up certain images in the, in the minds of people in the West. So I'd be interested to hear, one, your opinion about Russian media in general, but then obviously in particular this notion of the football media in Russia and the, the differences between the Russian football media and the English football media. So let's start off t- talking about the, the Russian media. Give us, a, give us a bit of an overview of, of what you have garnered about the Russian media from your experiences of working within it. Well, the Russian media, John, for me has, I first start by saying, has a, has a complex about its relationship with Western media. And I would say it is partially justified in from my perspective and partially not there is um i would say it's a it's verging on an obsession with being targeted unfairly by being tarred by the wrong brushes by western media and um, now i think i'll start by saying how i understand it from one perspective and that is if in i'm talking in the broadest sense here at this stage when you think of Russia, the country, for a country of its size, of its history, of its political history, um, of its relevance on the world stage in almost every level, to be that significant and for so little to be truly understood about it is, I would argue, one of the most unusual ratios you'll probably find around the world today. And I'd say that extends into the media. Um, when a negative story is written, it is not often based on on-the-ground insight. Um, there are very few English journalists based out here um, permanently. There are a few for the Associated Press in Moscow, and it's all centred around Moscow at this point. When we say Russian media, we're talking about Moscow media, nothing else. Um, um, so the Russian media, I would say, they react very almost, def- well, very defensively 
to anything that is critical of Russia. And I, I do actually believe a lot of the coverage of the country in general uh, in Western media has been, it's filled a hole that readers, perhaps, dare I say it, even editors have wanted to fill because it's very simple. It sells. You know, you say Russia, you say controversy, and that's what people will, will lap up. Now, I'm not saying it's unjustified. There are both sides that have justification is what I'm saying. Um, the, one of the things that people very rarely realize about Russia is that, yes, it is riddled with corruption at all levels. And when I first arrived here, I thought I've got to be wary of saying this or even voicing that opinion. But the thing that people don't realize is that Russians are completely aware of this. They accept it and they just but quite simply don't care because, you know, when you need to make something turn to your advantage, then you, well, you, you pay somebody. I mean, it, it, it is, it is certainly true. I've bribed more than one traffic policeman. Um, <laughs> there were other things I would rather not go into specific details where I may or may not have influence with, uh, uh, monetary exchanges, shall we say? Um, and I consider myself an upstanding member of society. So um, it, that attitude of you get what you want, you do what you have to do to get what you want, pervades a large area of Russian society. And I think a lot of a lot of people in the West just wouldn't be able to square with that. And I understand that. You know, there are different sets of, of values, different sets of morals, if you like. Um, so yeah, like I say, with the Russian media, it is um, that's certainly one angle that stood out to me most of all. But then in terms of the football media, I suppose, in this country, that I, I think there's a gap between the media and the football media. The, I, it's quite easy, I think, for, it, for the football media to be parochial. And I suspect, I suppose the same will be true in, in Russia as well, given that I think there's just so much going on in football all the time that you can just get bogged down in, in, in this little world of, of football. So let's talk about the, the specifics of, of football media in Russia. You've had experiences. I know you do a lot of coverage of the Champions League and you said the Russian Premier League. So you've, you've come across a lot of the, uh, I guess the major uh, names in Russian media. Um, what, what have your experiences of that been? Well, the, the coverage of Russian football, I'd say, has changed quite significantly in the last, particularly the last three to four years. Um, there's been a huge move to try and popularize the coverage, make it more accessible, more, I wouldn't say dumbed down, but presented in a more appealing way. There were more talk shows, more analysis shows. Um, and I personally am in favor of it because there's a huge disconnect in Russia, an enormous disconnect between fans and the match day experience and players. There's the, until now, at least. Um, the, now the atmosphere has improved in, enormously in the last two years in particular. Euro 2016, um, the relationship of the Russian national team and the fans was at a, I would argue, an all time low. The attitude of players was poor. There was a stagnation in the selection of players and that was reflected in the media. It was very, very critical. And I would say rightly so. But, um, under Stanislav Chichosov, the current national team head coach, the, the selection of players, the attitude of the players, the performance on the pitch, it all plays into it. But also the coverage in the media has been much more uh, spectator friendly. Um, you know, the, the shows on TV are more widespread. They, they don't just show the games and have five, ten minutes chat. They actually go into more detail now. They have managers, current and past, um, giving comments where you feel like you're getting more of an insight into the game. Um, I mean, in my personal experience individually, I, when I go to Moscow for Champions League games, I come across a few of the well-known personalities in, in the press rooms, and they're very, very approachable. And a lot of them speak fluent English, interestingly enough. Um, for example, there is on Match TV, is the, the state-run sports network channel. Uh, they have a monopoly on broadcasting um, all football in Russia. And the, there is an, a, there's a show called Anguski Accent where there are a few Russian journalists who are based permanently in England, um, who go to the Premier League games. They go around different cities. And it's a very interesting insight for Russian people because just like Western people won't have a first-hand view of Russia, Russians also don't often have a first-hand view of, of England. Um, and there are shows that offer that. Um, 
Uh, one name in particular that I'd like to point out is Michel Polyanov, is a presenter commentator for Match TV. Um, now, he, sp- he speaks fluent English, and I've spoken to him a few times. Uh, the last time was actually a couple of weeks ago for Lokomotiv Moscow played uh, Schalke, and he recognised me in the press room, having not seen me for, say, a year and a half. Now, I would not have blamed him in the slightest if he hadn't remembered me. Um, he's a very recognisable face, a very popular personality. And he, he came over to me, had a chat for five, ten minutes, and it, it felt very inclusive. Now, I mean, to compare it to English media, my experience of English football media was only when I was in my infancy of this as a profession. Um, I used to report on lower league games. I went to AFC Wimbledon, to Woking, um, you know, and, and then it felt like the most claustrophobic, oppressive atmosphere. I felt like I was an outsider the entire time. I, I felt like I was being sneered at for being a new person in the press box. And I don't, I can't say that is what the picture is like today or what it was for everybody else even 10 years ago. But the difference, the accessibility, the communication between different colleagues or different outlets, for me, is a, an entirely different world. And I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that part of working in the Russian media. Um, this is before we analysed the opinions of people and how they presented, just simply the atmosphere of working in it. It's so much more welcome. How much do you think that that has got to do with the fact that you are English and, and there is that perception of... Because I, I know just my experiences of having having also done some work for a football grad, for example, when you work for an outlet that sounds a little bit foreign, when you're when you're applying for press passes, etc., I, I found it a lot easier to get access when it was assumed that I was was more of an expert in Eastern football. Do you think that there's an element of that there? Yeah, I think I think that's certainly, certainly an element of that, yes. Uh, it's like I mentioned about how I spoke to my, my local press officer, my nationality was... It was something quite, quite a novelty for him, and I think it works on on all levels really. Um, yeah, I think I think there certainly is an element of that. There is a there is a fascination with uh, native speakers, with uh, a real life Englishman, shall we say? <laughs> um, now I know a lot of people will have in their minds that after the well, the all of the political events recently, the relationship between Russia and the UK must be an awful one. Even the petrol station attendant yesterday said to me, when he said, where are you from? And I said, England. He said, are we friends? With a questioning look on his face. <laughs> and there's this assumption that, that, that Russian people and English people don't get on. And it's, I really want to disabuse that notion straight away because it's quite the opposite. There's, there's a genuine warmth towards English people from Russian people. I'm not talking about the higher levels of government here. I'm talking about the day to day relationship, the fascination with other cultures, because Russians are fascinated by other cultures. So to answer your question about is there an element of that, I definitely think that's that's true, yes. My my Englishness will make me possibly a more interesting proposition than I actually am. I mean, that was not my intention at all. I was, I was, <laughs> no, no, no. You know, as you said, it's a closed world, isn't it? It Often is. In the football media and I think any, any in you can get yeah. is, 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 is much welcomed. Let's, let's just talk a little bit about Russian people's relationship with football. So obviously we're talking about football media in particular. In this country, I think there's a general recognisability to a, a lot of um, uh, the big players in the football media, even at the level, I think, now with Twitter of a lot of the football writers. Is the same true in, in Russia in terms of knowing personalities who are well-respected in the football media? Uh, or would you say there's a difference in context there as well? I, I would say there is certainly a, a, a parallel to be drawn. There is um, There is a widespread attraction to big names, and I'd say even on a more broader scale. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. In in the lower leagues in Russian football, there is a complete apathy towards almost every single team. Now, I, I speak from experience, having watched my local team struggle to survive in the second tier. Um, now, we had a Brazilian player who arrived four years ago, uh, three years ago, sorry, um, Clayton. He was an absolutely brilliant player, far, far better than the Russian second tier, and suddenly people came to watch. And as soon as he left, the attendances dropped by, I would say, about three, four hundred. And when we're, talk- we're talking about, you know, a third of the entire attendance there, um, now the team is still a, a very good team for the level, 
but there is an appeal of celebrity. You know, it, it does have, I would argue, more than average appeal um, to general public. So when it comes to personalities in the media, they certainly they make a career out of being a personality. Um, there is a very popular show which is on Match TV, which is presented by a, a journalist called Yuri Dud, and he was just a, a standard writer on Sports.ru, which is a quite a quite a popular portal that um, is like an aggregator for news, sports news over here. And he tweeted and tweeted and tweeted. He was visible. He became more visible, and he now presents a show. He now even uh, promotes uh, head and shoulders shampoo alongside other luminaries of Russian football. Um, and he is seen as suddenly a huge personality. He was just a writer. I, I'm nothing against him at all. He he has interesting viewpoints. Uh, I'm not saying I think he's the best journalist of all time, but he's good. He works hard. But he's made that almost purely out of social media. Um, but people lap that up. They they respond to it. They They seem to listen to what the big names say. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's entirely different to many countries, but it does seem to be particularly prevalent here, I would say. And what sort of social media outlets are they, are they using in general? Is it the same as over here? Is it Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, etc.? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, there's, uh, Instagram does seem to be the most popular. Um, and it, it is used by, by players of all, you know, all levels. Um, Chimen is my, my local city, FC Chimen, had a captain, Andre Pavlenko, who played for us for four or five years, and he's an extremely down-to-earth guy. Um, when I used to report on games and see him in the corridors, you know, in between press conferences or whatever, he would always come and say hello, he would shake your hand, um, and he followed me on, on Instagram. I chat to him sometimes. He now plays in Vladivostok for Luchena Gia, um, and yeah, he, he will, he will chat away quite happily. And that, I think, is one of the really good examples of what social media can do for connectivity between fans, journalists, players. Um, but it is the same sort of outlets and it has become an, well, an obsession. I don't know what the right word is. It's become a cornerstone of the relationship between, uh, fans, media and players. And yeah, there are some good examples of it. Let's start moving on to talk about the World Cup and let's start by talking about it more generally. It's been, what, three or four months now, maybe a bit longer after, since the World Cup's ended. How do you look back on, on that as a phenomenon taking place in Russia? What what were the takeaways that you have? Do you have a different opinion about the World Cup now to what you had before it started, etc.? Um, so, yeah, just tell us a little bit about how you how you come to terms with what happened in, in the summer in Russia. Well, it, it was just a, a phenomenal success on many levels for me. And my perspective of it was slightly different to what most people probably had because I wasn't working inside the stadium, but I was seeing people on the ground, sort of everyday situations within the bubble of a World Cup. And to see that many nationalities and cultures come to Russia with a, and this is what I mean by the fascination I mentioned earlier of Russians about other cultures. It is genuine. Now, there was, of course, the concerns about uh, the attitude of certain areas of Russian society towards um, towards other, other races, other cultures, other sexualities, all areas of society that have, unfortunately, it is, it is true that uh, in Russia there have been problems with homophobia, with racism. But, and I know it sounds awful to even say but when you get to that point, but it is important to point out that there is a there is a very important context that people probably either don't understand or even when it's explained and don't accept the it, when there is a negative what we would see as a negative reaction and is clearly a negative reaction towards people of other cultures or or sexualities there is there is the context of the 20th century. Now, I'm not a politician or sociologist or historian, but there is, I, I, I'm married to a Russian and I have Russian family here and I've watched and listened to their attitude towards other people. And 
the 20th century was something that really can't ever happen again, I don't think, in quite the same way, given the way we have media, social media to connect us in some ways with the entire world. With the Soviet Union being closed for a closed country for 70 years, there, there is the way that ideologies were incubated here is something that is hard to understand and appreciate in, in other cultures. Now, I understand a very small slip of it, but I understand enough to see that when, for example, a, a former colleague of mine, a, a local man when I was a teacher, he, uh, he did say a very horrible thing once he said, I, I don't like gay people. He just simply said it. And I said, well, why don't you? I thought, well, I'm going to give him a chance to explain it because I want to understand where it's coming from. And he said, it's, we're just not used to it. It's very uncomfortable for us. Now, I know that is an, it's not a justification, but there is the context of time is basically what I want to say. And the, the, I am coming around to what you said about the World Cup here because <laughs> um, I know it's a long-winded way of doing it, but um, my view has always been about Russia, Russian people, attitudes towards people of different, well, different backgrounds, should we say. And it should be judged on time, not now, but in 50, 70 years' time. That will be a fair time to judge it. Now, for the World Cup, I thought this might be, it could go one of two ways. I have faith in the average Russian person of being genuinely warm hosts, and and they proved that. And that was definitely the biggest positive of the World Cup for me. Um, now, there were concerns within Russian media, people I know, that after the World Cup, the kindness, the warmth, the, the effective but friendly policing even, would just revert to type once all the foreigners had gone and it would all be a show for the world and then would return back to the bad old days of, of, of aggression, of, of lack of consideration for others. Um, I don't really see it as that. I think it has improved since then and that's got to be the end goal. Sure, there's social change that will take place because people have actually seen other people. They've seen that, well, if you appreciate them, they'll appreciate you. Um, so for me, the effects of the World Cup was on a social level was just phenomenal um, to see such large masses of Russian people united in the way that they were just celebrating, just partying on the streets. It just doesn't happen here. Uh, there isn't a reason to party on the streets in such numbers anymore with the World Cup gone. But it was it was like a release almost. It was like people were able to finally just be open, and it, and it works. I'm not saying all Russian people are now cured of their attitudes that people see as backwards, there are still plenty that, that need to understand, that need to be educated. But it was a huge success, I think. And, and I'm glad that, that people have seen that. Well, that's very positive. Um, let's talk about your experience of the World Cup, which was, as you've mentioned, visit, you visited all 11 cities and mm. did a huge amount of driving. Um, <laughs> sorry if you need a trigger warning for that, but I know there was times when, <laughs> when you were sleeping in your car when, when it seemed like not the best idea that you've ever had. But talk us through, talk us through what happened uh, for that month of, of the Russian World Cup for you. Well, yes, um, that, was, that was quite a month. That, um, <laughs> it was, oh God, let's just, I'll get some numbers up. It was about 33 days I was on the road. And 10 of those, I slept in a natural bed. The others were all in my car. Um, I drove 16,000 kilometers in 33 days. I visited all 11 host cities, um, three time zones, um, four countries, in fact. I drove through, sorry, three countries, Lithuania and Latvia, on the way to Kaliningrad. Yeah, of course, yeah. I have to say, that was one of my favorite parts of the trip. Um, and I... Thankfully, didn't have to, because I don't understand how cars work. I have no idea about how a car engine. Uh, I didn't have to change a tire once or have the slightest problem with my car. So, um, well done, Hyundai Solaris. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, John, it was a very, very odd experience because I felt frustrated half the time not being in a stadium when I wanted, you know, the day was the World Cup and I thought, I'm missing out, I'm missing out. But I now realized that uh, I hate to say it, everybody, but everybody else is there. Um, I, re <laughs> I really am probably one of very few people, without much exaggeration, to have actually visited all 11 cities. Um, there are one or two journalists who did a fantastic job of covering that. Um, there's uh, an English writer, Elliot Rothwell, who lives in, uh, in Moscow. He wrote some excellent long pieces for ESPN. 
and he visited all cities before the World Cup. Um, I, I would recommend that highly actually to anybody if you want to go back and read them. They're still fascinating pieces to read. Um, uh, but I got to I got to see the the southern part of Russia is just it's like it's not part of Russia. It's like it's removed in Sochi. Uh, I drove through Krasnodar and Rostov, and these these were very very different cities. I was very surprised to see how how the people didn't seem to be walking on the streets as much or as in the same way that I expected them to be. I thought it's a warmer climate; they'll be more open. I'm not saying they're not open people, but just the the atmosphere of the city was different. Um, you know, in the sense that it didn't feel like it was uh, it didn't feel like a celebration. Um, Sochi itself is very odd with the staging being 50 kilometers outside Sochi itself. Most technically actually in a different town, but, um, it's, uh, the, the facilities are just phenomenal and to see the people's reactions to them was, was fantastic. So, yeah, so I drove around. Um, I went to all 11 cities and I, I am so grateful that I got to see them. Uh, and a lot of them I visited before the World Cup for photography work as well. So, it felt like revisiting a place and confirming that it was what I thought it was. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, let's just say I'm glad I don't have a long way to um, to drive anymore. <laughs> In terms of the actual watching of the World Cup, did you get to watch much of it or was a lot of it spent listening to it on radios or in your car? <laughs> Uh, it was very, very little, actually, in truth. Um, I, I got to go to one game in the stadium. Uh, my dearest mother bought me a birthday present of a ticket to watch England, Sweden in the quarterfinals. So that was, that was fantastic. And that, that was the first time I actually ever watched England, uh, live, uh, in the stadium. I didn't watch many other than the last week or so. Although I'd say there's one that sticks out a, a country mile. This has got to be the most bizarre place and manner in which to watch a football game. Um, I was driving between Kazan and Nizhny Novgorod. Uh, I was giving a lift to um, Martino Simchek from Copper 90. And it was at the time of the Spain against Russia game in the, uh, the round of 32. And he had his mobile phone up. It was streaming the game live. And his 4G signal was dropping in and out. It was a bit stuttery. Uh, so there we were. We were watching this. And it was a it was a traffic jam for about two hours straight. So at one point, we were, we were just still for an hour. I had a ball in the car. So we got out, had a kickabout by the side of the road. He was holding his phone. And we watched the penalty shootout. And we went absolutely <laughs> ballistic when Russia won. I mean, I, John, it was embarrassing. It was... I. I don't know why, but it just the moment, the pressure of why are we not watching it in front of the TV? There were so many reasons. It just all came out. But then it was the most bizarre thing. There we were in this, this track jam, and almost everybody else must have had a phone on them with 4G of some description. Not a slightest sound from anybody else in the entire traffic jam. And there was me. There was an American. There was an Englishman. And we were going mental. And we started getting angry with the other people saying, why the well, in rather more colourful language, why are you not celebrating your own country that just beaten a former world champion in a knockout game in the World Cup? Um, so that was that was quite a memorable experience. Certainly one of my favourites manners of watching a game. So you were doing all of this for Ronnie Dog, a media company that I actually know very little about. So tell us a little bit more about that. I had a browser their website yesterday, and they seem to have. They seem to have fingers in every pie. I'm surprised that it's it sort of passed me by a little bit. But the impression that I get is that Ronnie Dog is 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 the sort of hive mind of of, of a lot of different websites, and and so uh, it sort of exists in in the background a little bit. But tell us about the model, and and um, we'll then move on. I think to talk a little bit about the, the 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 nature of the relationship between the new media and the old. So, well, yeah, sure. I mean, it's um, it's a a large group of websites. There are. Uh, there are 30 websites in the group at the moment, um, and it's mostly focused on analysis, match analysis, player analysis, um, previews, using statistics to look at games. And the idea is we want to use them in not just regurgitating XG figures. And I actually personally don't have anything against XG. I, I've come around to that idea. I was skeptical at first, I'll admit, but now I understand it more. But um, but actually explaining why the statistics mean something. Um, now, there are, we've got over 100 writers who write for us of different levels of 
Well, of time commitment, people have full-time jobs, so they're doing this outside their regular working hours in many cases. Uh, up to some people who have been writing analysis, absolutely fantastic analysts, honestly, some of the best I've ever read, um, who've been doing this for, for years and years. And the, uh, the idea is that, you know, people, people want more than just a regurgitated match report nowadays. Um, and, you know, if, you know, I've heard, listened to you talking on, um, on the Morons podcast, John, about the media and, uh, you and Nico explained it very eloquently. And I agree with what you said that, that a large part of, I do see it as a problem is that, uh, a large part of media doesn't offer anything new. It doesn't offer anything, it doesn't offer anything original. And I'm not saying that, uh, no other websites use statistics or analysis, but we want to offer that to as many club specific sites as possible so people can know exactly what they're getting straight away. That I'll go to Red Devils report from Manchester United statistical analysis. Um, so it, that's, that's the idea. And we would, we have a lot of young writers, up and coming writers who are joining us. And, you know, we try to build a community amongst the writers themselves. So we have a Slack group and everybody communicates it on a daily basis. And we want to make it feel inclusive. John, you know what we said earlier about the, how the atmosphere of some media can feel exclusive. Um, and there isn't that relationship, not just between, you know, clubs and players and journalists, but journalists themselves. This is an atmosphere we wanted to try and, try and cultivate. Um, Chris, Chris Darwin is the, is the genius behind it. He is, he is the, the head honcho. Um, and I've worked with him for a few years on different projects and it was, uh, it was for Ronnie Dog that I went around the World Cup. Um, and that I'm now trying to, well, offer as much as I can. Not in the sense that I think I know more than anybody else. I really don't. I am still learning a lot about the media, but to offer my perspective at least and to just try and help bring analysis, I don't want to say to the mainstream, but make it more accessible in, in our own small way. And so all of those, those websites that are linked into the Ronnie Dog model, are mm. they generally club specific websites then? Yeah, most of them are, yes. We have, um, we have a Serie A analysis, uh, La Liga analysis, um, and we have a, uh, EFL, a football league analysis website. So, Quite a few people are based in near their local clubs in the football league and they will go and report on them and offer their analysis on them too. So, um, there are a few other sites we have as well. There actually is a cricket one, um, a satirical cricket website. Um, there's a long form site as well, which is quite close to my heart because I like writing in depth tales of nostalgic football moments, players and clubs. So I write for that um, uh, on a weekly basis, and but most of it is club-specific analysis. Yes. And to what extent would you say that there is a future for this sort of new new media approach? Obviously, with so much of the old media doing the the sort of standard traditional forms of, of media, do you think that that has a sell-by date or do you think we'll always have I mean this is something again that Nico and I talk about regularly but this mm. the sort of uh, ability of the old media to sort of buy up the elements of the new media they're doing well so so no doubt the the old media will uh, evolve as well uh, but to what extent mm. do you think that there will be uh, an influx of this sort of new media which from what I can see from Ronnie Dog it seems as though there's a there's an understanding of of social media people's internet habits and ability to to sort of trace mm. the way that traffic will go etc to what extent do you do you sort of navigate that, that that sort of tricky distinction then between the old media and the new media and how do you see the new media that's sort of emerging i think there is going to be a constant struggle uh, in my view john just to provide the latest original angle um and i think i think that statistics are going to become more and more uh, common in discussion and therefore I think it will be used a lot more wide in a more widespread manner. Um, I think there is a place if it's done well. And by done well, I don't mean simply the opinions are correct or the analysis necessarily is accurate to what most people think, but just simply the, 
analysis is used in the right way. And I mean analysis in, on all levels, how people actually discuss games. I think there is a, it's like, again, like you and Nico have said, people in the end are not going to settle just for homogenous, rehashed, generic match reports. People want more than that. As the game changes, you, I listened, I was fascinated by the last podcast, actually, the Morons one, where you, you talked about, and your, your article as well, John, in fact, about how football tactics will evolve against each other or as a consequence of each other. Therefore, as the game changes, the way people talk about it is obviously going to change. And I do think there will be a place for, um, new media simply because old media can't afford to get left behind. It will eventually, if it doesn't change, will get left behind because people don't rely on it entirely anymore. People don't rely just on a newspaper for their match report, for their opinion, for their recounting of what has happened. They can get it pretty much anywhere they want. And I think in a way it's interesting because the way I see it is that the consumers, I don't like using the word, but it's relevant in a, in one sense, the consumers of football are the ones who really hold the key now. They're the ones who will decide because they now have a choice and a much wider choice um, of how they consume football. So I think definitely there is uh, there is a place. The problem is, of course, how you make that a sustainable um, career in itself to actively make enough money to to make it a full time thing. That's that's what everybody. That's the golden golden ticket, isn't it? Um, but in the end, I think it will it will out because simply that's what people want. Yeah, let's just move on quickly to talk a little bit about about your career and just give us a, an idea of what your sort of day to day life looks like. The stuff you do for Ronnie Dog and then all the other stuff I'm sure you do around it. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the perks of of my job at the moment are being able to report on games. So I love doing those match reports, but every day. Uh, everyday job, I I will look through a lot of the analysis articles. We have probably about 30 articles a day, so it can get quite difficult to, to keep up. Um, but I look through, I will edit, I'll give a few bits of advice on how to um, present the statistics a bit more concisely, more accurately, perhaps. Um, uh, I will write a piece a day. Uh, it might be uh, an analysis article on how Karen Benzema performed differently against CSKA Moscow compared to how he did at home to Victoria Pilsen, um, for example. And then I will spend some time each day uh, simply going through other media, reading it and thinking, well, could there be an angle that we should be writing about? Is there is there an opinion that we need to analyse ourselves? Um, and... And most interesting for me personally is is the uh, academy that we set up, which we intend to use to help uh, journalism students, not teach them journalism in the broadest sense. That's why they're at university or college, but to teach them our brand of writing, our analysis, how to present it. Uh, and in the long run, um, hopefully give people confidence that this is something they can do beyond just studying. Um so I, I try and keep in contact as much as I can with the Slack channel with the new writers, the old writers, discuss different ideas. Um, and it, the hours are, as I'm sure you're fully familiar with, Sean, the, the hours are very fluid, shall we say. Um, you know, sometimes you can find yourself in that zone until two or three in the morning when you know you're being productive. So you've just got to crack on while you're productive. Other days during the day, um, I might need to simply... Um, just, just get out of the house, change scenery. Um, so it will, um, it, it can change very, very quickly from day to day. But I, I kind of like that because it means if I'm productive, then I can get the most out of my day. So, um, it is certainly one of the plus sides mm. for me. Yeah. The idea of knowing that you've got a long night ahead because you're productive is very resonant with me. Tell us, like, maybe, maybe before we close, just a, a little bit of an expansion on, on your academy for, for, for journalists. That's done through Ronnie Dog, yeah? Yeah. And it involves what sort of a lot of feedback to the, the new, the new guys coming through. Is mm -hmm. that the sort of model that it takes? Yeah. I mean, it's, we didn't want to make it too heavy handed, uh, to start with. So we, we set a, we're going to, well, we'll start actually, um, this coming week, but we'll set one task a week where it will mostly involve them reflecting on an article they've written or an article someone else has written, 
Um, a lot of it is to try and encourage uh, ownership of your own work. So I've always believed that if I put my name to a byline, then I'm saying this is the best I can do given my knowledge. So if I've let something slip, even if it's just punctuation or spelling or simply I've not gone into enough detail there or I've not used this statistic correctly, we want to encourage them to actually take a bit of pride in the work that they do um, and see that it doesn't take that much to help yourself develop. Um, I don't believe in spoon feeding people. I believe in helping people improve themselves. Um, and I include myself wholeheartedly in that. Um, a lot of the guys we have on the team have, have shown me ways that they've presented statistics, how they've structured an article, and I, I really value that, that communication. So the, the academy is to encourage that, basically. Um, and, and hopefully we will move on to a long-form section, uh, onto building contacts, conducting interviews, to try and encourage not settling into one avenue of writing because I think that's one of the most dangerous things that people can do. Um, so that's what we that's what we're doing on uh, on a weekly basis. Well, that's very exciting, and uh, I'm a firm believer in the sort of semper referendum injunction. I think one of the one of the main problems in uh, there's a general thing to say, but I think one of the problems that I encounter a lot in football media is an inability to be self-critical, and um, I think just mm-hmm. en- engendering that kind of attitude where you think look, there's always room for improvement. There's always a second reflection or that you can have on your own work where you think, oh, actually, I could I could maybe do that better. I could maybe define tiki-taka a little better, for, for example. Um, <laughs> Careful there, John. Careful. <laughs> I think that's a really good attitude to go in having because I think so much of what we see in, in the media, sorry, this is going to, this is becoming my thought of the day. Uh, so much of the media, I think, is about is about getting out content quickly and then the content just sort of having that latency period of a few hours. And I think the future of the media, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is going to be about doing media more carefully, football media more carefully. We're seeing that already in news journalism. We're seeing slow journalism where you've got sites like Delayed Gratification that will talk about events three months later and say, looking back three months, what can we learn from that? And we've had that conversation on this podcast. What have we learned from the World Cup three months after it's happened? And I think that sort of gap that sort of distance allows you some some sort of different reflection from from the immediate so um, I think we'll start seeing that in the football world I think we'll start seeing people aware of the fact that you can take your time over a piece of writing and it and it can produce something that goes beyond what you're just simply producing in the moment on the beat so yeah I, uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that and let's maybe make this into a general question about about the future of the of, of the media where do you I ask all my my guests this where do you see the future of the of the media going and how do you see yourself slash Ronnie Dog fitting within that future I John I 100% agree with you on the on the nature of what I think content will become because simply content has never stayed exactly the same so for that reason some changes obviously going to happen that doesn't take great analysis but the type and the direction it's going in uh, it's got to offer more people want more because there is more choice there's it's become more I don't know what the exact term would be, democratic, if you like. Um, uh, you'll, you'll be better placed to, <laughs> to use the correct uh, correct word to analyse it. But basically, there's so much choice that you've got to be competitive. And by competitive, at the moment, I would agree with what you say, that it's, uh, it's a competitive race to get contact quickly as possible. And that's probably always going to be true to an extent in terms of, if you can get content out first before other people of equivalent nature of content, that's always going to be important. But I do think people will, will clamor for more considered approaches. I'd say as evidence for that, look at the rise of, of magazines, of long form independent magazines. I think it's um, been fascinating the last five years and I've been very lucky to contribute to one or two, um, quite how popular they are, they are becoming. And it shows that people want at least some form of content that is longer than just a headline. Um, my concern is the, I'm going to sound like an old fart here, but the, the youngest generation at the moment is how they consume. I'd say our generation are really the, the first young professional generation to have social media on such a wide scale. Therefore, it's, we're kind of a crossover between the two worlds in a sense. 
I used to love sitting down with a, a physical newspaper on a Saturday afternoon, and I still would if I had that. Um, for, incidentally, print journalism out here is not just, I don't think I've ever seen a newspaper in nine years. Um, it's all on street. It's all consumed instantly, isn't it? Um, it certainly is here anyway. So in terms of how I see the future of the media going, I think, I think you will start to see people and by people, what do I mean? Investors will see an opportunity that is, but they probably have, have looked past, uh, in, in the past, it's all been about content numbers, viewer numbers. And I'm not saying that's going to change per se, but they'll see that some of those viewer numbers are actually in long form, are in, um, you know, magazine content as opposed to just, you know, the, a 200 word headline article. And I think eventually we're going to see outlets eventually be able to pay a little more full time. It's got to take a leap of faith from, from somebody f- of, a, of a significant uh, backing. But I think eventually that's where we're going to be. Um, even the podcasting world uh, is is just exploding like mad. And I think some podcasts will live a short shelf life just because it's such a crowded marketplace. Um, and in, it, possibly the podcast market is not a good example, actually. I, it could end up being constituted into just a few mega podcasts that are really sustainable. Um, now, I, I hope sincerely that that is not the case because people will listen to, you know, you and Nico having a conversation. It, it, I could tell, and I mean this in the nicest way, John, the last podcast, I could tell there wasn't a rigid structure to the podcast. It followed a natural course of conversation. And I think that is, I think that is what people want. They want to feel, they want to follow a conversation, maybe find themselves agreeing or not agreeing, but not just have a, not always at least, a structured bullet point recapping what they've already seen. Um, so it will take a leap of faith, but I do think that leap of faith will come uh, for investments to be made in outlets that are, at the moment are independents and possibly can't pay full-time, but eventually will be able to, simply because that's what people want. And, and you know, people, viewership numbers, they talk. Mm. Well, Andrew, I could talk to you all day long. I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, but I should let you go. Could you, before we finish, just let people know the best ways of following you on social media, where they can find your work, etc.? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm most, most be active on Twitter at Andrew M-I-J Flint. And I think my Instagram handle is the same. So I, I do some sort of lighthearted video content when I go to game, games out here in Russia. So if you're interested in seeing what Siberian football likes behind the scenes, then follow me on there. Um, most of my content for Ronnie Dog Media is at Red Devils Report. And getting sacked in the morning is my attempt at being satirical and funny. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yes, if you head over to either of those two websites, um, you'll find most of my content there. Thanks very much for coming on, Andrew. Well, thanks very much for having me, John. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. You can tune in next week to hear Chris Sutcliffe talk about football media from an outside perspective. But until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.